Raji Sohal on the podcast today. Our global Washington correspondent checked in with us about the overturning of Roe v. Wade, along with Nicole Huberfeld, a law professor at Boston U. Michelle Fortin from the Vancouver Pride Society joined us to talk about what's coming up for their celebrations. But first, when it comes to beating the heat, city planners and architects turn to air conditioning pretty quickly. But what can building design offer us when it comes to solutions? Here's my conversation with UBC architecture prof Adam Reisnick. Today's a hot one. And depending on what kind of a building you live in, you're going to be impacted by it differently. Some buildings just seem to manage the heat better than others. And with climate change and heat waves, it is important to ask how building design is adapted for handling that heat. Dr. Adam Risenek is the Assistant Professor of Environmental Systems at the UBC School of Architecture and Landscape Architecture. And he joins me on the line right now. Good morning, Adam. Good morning. I am so interested in this question of how buildings and their design is uh, being focused around climate change and how it can be adapted. Um, Just quickly before we get into things here, I want to share with you that I used to live in a condo um, where I was uh, facing the sun. I was south facing and it just turned into a greenhouse on a warm day. So when it would be 25 degrees outside, it would be, you know, over 30 inside. If it was 30 outside, it might hit 40 inside and we couldn't crack the windows much. Are buildings like that still even being made? Oh, they definitely are. And uh, I'm not sure if they're they're much better today as they were at that time. And, and uh, I can share the same story. I lived in that condo that was exactly that same uh, design uh, a few years few years ago. Uh, so unfortunately, we're still seeing buildings like that. On the other hand, what we're seeing, and whether this is good or bad, is that now these same buildings do have cooling, or, or more and more of these new condos are having cooling installed. But the irony is, is that the problems that make them excessively hot are some of these common sense design problems that you're probably picking up. Why do the windows not open that much? Yeah. Why is there not sufficient shading, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, and I still see and hear from listeners, um, and I see it on the forums, on, on Reddit, online, and on Facebook, where people are, are still complaining, my uh, strata it requires that I can only open my window a centimeter, and so I can't even take advantage of cross breeze. Uh, so I know some buildings are just not adapting at all where does that leave the inhabitants well you know that is the ultimate question it doesn't leave them in in a good spot does it and i think that more and more i feel that as citizens as residents we're all picking up this issue and and uh you know to to any of us who might have even traveled around the world we know that this is not some sort of established norm in climates that are warmer climates that have adapted to the heat uh, in Europe, even in the Mediterranean, they've, they've have measures historically to keep buildings cool and comfortable without air conditioning. And I think it, it doesn't really take much, but, but really a, a demand and, and sort of a, a bottom up approach to uh, calling and stratas and, and, and residents calling for these interventions that are different. But we also probably need to talk about cost and we need the city and our government to stand behind these interventions that aren't common here yet that do cost a bit more money at, at first, like having shading on the outside of the building and other interventions, but they pay dividends. And I think once we're used to them and seeing them in the city, we'll be much more used to expecting them on our buildings. And 
that's probably the biggest barrier we might have in Vancouver. We're not used to seeing them. So sometimes we're skeptical that these other types of measures like shading on the outside of a building work, but they do. And once we start seeing them more and more often, we'll probably expect and want them more and more often too. Well, I don't know how people would be skeptical of them because they can be so effective. So let's run through some of those interventions and not take any for granted. Why don't you tell us how uh, buildings could be uh, kind of shaded or cooled down? Yeah, so, you know, some of the things I'm probably going to be talking about is obviously for new buildings, and we have a lot of existing buildings that have these baked-in problems. For all these new buildings that we're going to be still building, and a lot of them in in the Lower Mainland over the next 20, 30 years, you know, we can start with thinking about the sun and excessive heat. We have interior blinds in all of our buildings, but the moment the sun comes through the window to the inside, the majority of that solar energy that we're trying to avoid being absorbed inside and baking the interior of our space is already there. Even if it it gets reflected by the blinds, it's already come through the windows, that heat's going to stay inside. Uh, In Central and Southern Europe, it's relatively common to have exterior shading on a building, even exterior Venetian blinds that's of move and they can fully open if you want a great view and they can also close if you want to keep the sun from even coming through the window to the inside that does quite a lot and especially for this issue of condos overheating in the sun if only if we had shading on the outside of our buildings to reflect that sun away we could see how much more comfortable it would be we need to definitely revisit our general approach and our anxieties around openable windows in high-rise buildings we're not the only a city in the world with high-rise buildings, and, and there are risks of, of debris and things and people falling out of windows if they open even further. But, but we can overcome them using different techniques. And frankly, we could probably just overcome them by just allowing windows to be open and seeing to what extent um, uh, uh, these risks that we've had with having windows only five degrees uh, open. The windows are small anyway. Probably the windows that are being built right now, even if they open up further, nothing can really fall out of them uh, the way they... Exactly. Size. And in some cases, those windows are already an entire meter off the ground. So they're high exactly. up, hard to access exactly. and narrow, wouldn't fit an average person's body. Exactly. The other one, which is the one that, that uh, is, is the moment we think about it, it's really common sense, and yet it's so rare. We know uh, if, uh, on the hottest day, and last year we had some of the hottest days uh, the world has ever faced, uh, we can fry an egg on some asphalt. And the reason we do that, we can do that, is that that very dark color of pavement is highly absorptive to solar energy. White paint and white clothing, we know, reflects a lot of solar energy. In really hot climates, there's already a sort of movement for, for decades now to have the top surfaces of buildings, even all the exposed surfaces of buildings, being very light colors, white even, highly reflective white paint. And in kind of the engineering of, of commercial paints, we're even now seeing some sort of emerging paints that are so reflective of solar energy, they're actually cooler than the outside temperature when the sun's hitting it. They're almost emitting more energy than they're even absorbing from the sun. Those types of innovations, and even just regular white paint, uh, do quite a lot. There's studies in Arizona that show how the roof of a building can be several degrees, six to seven degrees cooler That's with a, a white paint than a dark paint. Yeah. And just something like that seems to make a lot of sense, and we're not even used to, to thinking about that yet. 
Yeah. And we talk here about old buildings and maybe people are picturing, oh, old buildings. She's talking about the 60s or 70s. But even some condos built in the early 2000s, they don't have AC. And AC is also really, uh, it's really expensive. It's not great for the environment. But these other interventions that you're talking about, exterior shading, uh, you know, painting, patios, white, exterior of building, white, rooftops, white, that kind of thing. Uh, Adam, this all sounds like common sense. So why isn't it happening? Why, why isn't Strata adapting across Metro Vancouver? Well, that, I think it's a conversation. I, I think, uh, you know, if I were to, to put myself in my dad's shoes, who was very much a common sense, but not, not an engineer, I mean, he would, he would probably win any of these arguments with me on the basis of common sense. And that's something I'd advocate all stratas to do. There may be some discussions around cooling, and, and, and there are a lot of different strong views, but a lot of these common sense views should still dictate the table. Before we put AC in existing building, I would love to see Estrada talk about ceiling fans, something that, in fact, many of us might have even grown up with, and we see less and less of them in new buildings, and yet why wouldn't we reintroduce ceiling fans just to circulate more air and take the edge off the heat? Uh, there could be residents who kind of oppose them. They may not like the aesthetics, they, and that, those are all kind of valid concerns. But for the many others, at, before someone else suggests, let's close the windows and put AC, Let's talk about these other measures. And when they say, one says they don't work, uh, it can't work when it's 46 degrees outside. There is some truth to that. But for the vast majority of the time, these are measures that are not only common sense, they create much healthier buildings in terms of how we feel when we're inside these buildings. And that is worth much more than we're acknowledging right now. And so I just encourage Yes, demand for it. If anybody wants some proof of that, we can look to 300 billion people living in Europe quite comfortably under hotter weather uh, and doing just fine. In fact, often winning the argument about having healthier interior buildings than than we do here. Uh, That's probably the starting point. Feel confident in when you're pushing against these things. Uh, That's starting point. The other side is, of course, pushing government to do much more than just saying we need air conditioning in our buildings, which is what they seem to have done last month. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Thank you for getting the conversation started here this morning. Thanks very much. In Norway, a gay bar in Oslo was the subject of a shooting uh, during the capital's annual LGBTQ Pride Festival. And then, as many of you are already aware, in Victoria, organizer has had to cancel a Pride event due to threats of violence. So what about safety at Pride events here in Vancouver? Michelle Fortin is the chair of the Vancouver Pride Society. Michelle, good morning. Good morning, Reggie. Uh, so some some pride festivals have evolved out of a protest movement in some cities uh, where they have had a, a legacy of being really political. What's the history of pride in Vancouver? Uh, exactly the same. Very similar. Um, uh, pride here in Vancouver is more than 40 years old. And as you can imagine, uh, the, the human rights and civil liberties that we experience now were not necessarily in place or acted upon 40 years ago. So uh, true to uh, what happened at Stonewall 50 years ago, 52 years ago, um, here in Vancouver 40 years ago, it was about taking up space. It was about being seen. Um, It was less of a celebration and definitely more of a, a protest and a an opportunity to say, we're here, we're not going anywhere, 
um, let's figure this out um, and move forward together. And how would you say it's evolved in the last 40 years? Um, you know, I think for for many folks in the 2S LGBTQAI community, um, we experience kind of all the same things that our, um, our straight siblings do. Uh, but the reality is, is that trans folks, racialized folks, um, two-spirit and digi-queer folks are still working um, uh, for their rights. And so while we are able to celebrate more um, of those civil liberties, we still have to say uh, we haven't gone far enough. The needle still needs to move. So there is still an opportunity about taking up space um, and about educating people, uh, but there's also an opportunity to celebrate. Michelle, with what happened in Victoria, were you surprised? Um, you know, I, I have to say that despite the fact that um, I experience, you know, homophobia, transphobia um, uh, often, I'm still shocked and surprised uh, when people um, feel like they're emboldened enough um, to make threats um, or to actually follow through with any type of violence towards the community. But it is a, a reminder um, that we still need to be vigilant, that there are folks out there um, that really and truly don't understand what equity is um, and that are that kind of want to make us um, lesser citizens. And so what happened in Victoria was devastating. My understanding is, is that... Um, you know, that site is a well-known site and a, a support for the community. So when things have to stop or be set aside um, for safety, that is, um, yeah, that, that's a hard pill to swallow in 2022. You sound frustrated. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think that at some point um, in your life, you, you just wonder why some people don't get it. Um, I have a father who is 90. Uh, who walked out of a dinner party because people were making fun of trans people. So if my father at 90 can figure it out, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know? Everyone else uh, can th- then. Then everyone else can. And, and I think that, you know, that, that, that the big thing is, is whether you can figure it out or not, what's even more important is to recognize, you know, just like what's happened around Roe v. Wade, that individual choice, um, and, and, and the way that people choose to live their life, if it is not impacting you, it's not your business. Fair enough. I wonder if you think there's an uptick on, th- you know, with these threats to Pride events and whatnot. So, you know, I, I think that these, these are connected to the emboldening of folks uh, on the right. And, and I have to say you know, that, that, I, that I do think that this is a, a heteronormative white issue um, uh, uh, and that what we're experiencing is this rise of people, um, I don't know, fear, almost fearful that the world has changed so much from the world that they, that they, that they thought they knew um, and that we're experiencing them grasping at straws um, to make things look um, very different from the way the world looks, but um, the way that they they think it's supposed to. So I I worry about it. I'm one of those people that got on a plane and went to the Women's March in 20, 
17 in Washington, D.C. So the writing was on the wall. What's it like for the LGBTQ community are, are, are right now? Are folks fearful of attending these events? Are you hearing that people are fearful of attending the one in Vancouver? Are you hearing that people are fearful of, you know, wearing flags and, and supporting and showing rainbow support? So I guess what I would say, Raji, is that we're not hearing uh, from people at the Vancouver Pride Society that they're fearful what I would say is that as a member of the community, uh, I have conversations with um, friends and colleagues um, about the importance of a after a pandemic taking up some space since we haven't done that since 2019 um, and and be recognizing that that there there might be um, uh, issues of safety are, are 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 top of mind, and so that's where pride is. You know, working. We have always got a safety plan. We are always working with the city. We are always talking to people in the parade. We're working with staff. I mean, even the board is aware of you know nonviolent crisis intervention training. You know, the the hope is is that we are able to um, keep people safe while they take up space, um, continue to protest and celebrate at the same time. Yeah, Pride's about uh, support, visibility, celebration, so much more. For our listeners who are hearing this right now and going, hey, I want to be a part of this in some way, and it's maybe their first time, what's your advice? Uh, so go to our website, vancouverpride.ca. <laughs> uh, There's a whole host of events. Yesterday was the beginning with Eastside Pride. Um, and there's lots of things for families, um, lots of opportunity to kind of uh, connect with people, listen to some really great music, watch a drag show. Um, and our parade, of course, is the, uh, the Jewel in the Crown on the Sunday of a BC Long Weekend which is July 31st this year. It'll be a great time, and I'm looking forward to taking my kids for the first time since they didn't get to go oh, during the pandemic. That's great. Thank you so much, Michelle, for your time this morning. You bet, Raji. Have a great day. You too. Well, as many of you already know, on Friday, the Supreme Court of the United States overturned the landmark Roe v. Wade ruling that guaranteed the right to an abortion for more than 50 years. Joining us is Global News Washington correspondent Reggie Cicchini, and we're reaching him in Nashville. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. Well, I I know that many people in the United States must be feeling like they've uh, woken up in a different country than the one they knew before Friday. How would you describe the public's general reaction? Well, I mean, look, this decision that came down from a conservative majority on the Supreme Court really runs counter uh, to public opinion around the United States because poll after poll, even up to the last couple of weeks, show that the broad majority of Americans, up to 60, 65, 66 percent, did not want to see Roe overturned. Yet this is what happened with uh, with this majority ruling from the Supreme Court, which falls in line with where Republican lawmakers stand. And that's why you're seeing such a fervent pushback uh, from so many people around this country, because there are millions upon millions of women, uh, especially in these trigger law states like Tennessee, that are in the middle of or about to or have already seen their rights disappear. You mentioned these trigger law states, that there's 13 of them. Can you tell us about what happened there at the abortion clinics? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, as soon as this decision came down uh, from the Supreme Court in these trigger states, uh, what we saw was abortion uh, almost become immediately impossible to gain uh, with some states acting, you know, fast, like Oklahoma or Arkansas, where they made abortion uh, illegal. Here in Tennessee, there was a law on the books that called for a six-week ban uh, for abortion, uh, and it moved back to that. And now there is a push to go from six weeks to a total ban, making it illegal. It would be one of the most restrictive um, abortion policies in the country. And that's what we are seeing state after state. But there are a dozen other states that are not trigger laws that are working to go over their uh, laws to see if they can enact those. Like in Wisconsin, there's an abortion law from the mid-1800s that the Republican lawmakers in the state are going to try and bring into um, current law. And that's why there is such a pushback now from so many Democratic leaders in this country. You mentioned that the decision puts the court at odds with the majority of Americans who favored preserving Roe, according to opinion polls at least. How have Republicans defended that aspect then? Well, I mean, look, Republicans will say that this protects the rights uh, of an unborn child and that this is where uh, the country needs to go uh, in order to bring it to a, a you know, a more moral direction. Uh, but again, this could potentially become Republican overreach, as we've seen happen before, because privately we've heard from the former president talking to former aides and staff to say that this decision could further drive away suburban women voters from the Republican Party. That could be important in a year where Republicans are looking to regain control uh, in Washington in both the House and the Senate, and Democrats are now really trying to make this a top-line election issue to say that abortion rights are on the ballot, saying that the majority of Americans are against Republicans, but with Republicans controlling so many states and and gerrymandering so many election districts, uh, this is going to be an uphill battle for Democrats. Yeah. The overturning isn't a a complete surprise, given that the draft of it leaked recently, and the decision looks pretty much identical to it, but it still seemed to send shockwaves throughout the country nonetheless. What's that about? Well, I mean, look, there was a hope here that the Supreme Court was going to change its mind or uphold some parts of the Mississippi case that they were hearing that would have instated a 15-week ban uh, on abortions. Uh, but that didn't happen. Uh, and there is a fear here, especially we've heard this from Democrats. We heard this from the president uh, and from the House Speaker, Nancy Pelosi, who said that these are extreme moves being undertaken by the Supreme Court uh, and that the chief justice has now lost control of his Supreme Court. Uh, And I think the bigger issue here is that there is a broad concern abortions were first, will other rights become next, like access to contraception or intimacy in the bedroom? Uh, That's where the the real fear and why there was so much shock. Yeah, many uh, have thought that the the precedent for this fundamental constitutional protection was too intact to change, uh, and that society had even adjusted to Roe v. Wade. Uh, But Justice Thomas has suggested that it could be expanded upon. How popular is that opinion? Well, I mean, look, even some justices on the court are pushing back with that opinion uh, by saying, look, it might not be enshrined with the literal text of the Constitution, but there are rights that we can't take away uh, from the American population. Uh, and I think that this could create a bigger battle within the Supreme Court if they started to try and go back uh, against other rights, whether it becomes interracial marriage or whether it becomes uh, same-sex marriage. Uh, that that very likely would lead to a division in the court and even a division amongst some uh, members uh, of of, of uh, the Republican um, conference, uh, because that simply would go against um, you know even even more um, popular opinion from from what the U.S. population says. I know you got to go, Reggie. Just very quickly, can you tell us uh, about the protests that are happening across the states? 
Yeah, look, they've been they've been um, loud. They have been angry. They have been uh, popping up in nearly every single city, whether or not it's a Democratic-held city or uh, in a Republican state like here in Tennessee. We were at a protest uh, yesterday. There is a real concern uh, and, and bit of anger here that women's health uh, is on the line, and this is going to lead to a much larger mental health and physical health crisis. Here in Tennessee, uh, it, it, it ranks in the bottom 10 for maternal health uh, around the country, uh, and women of color are twice as likely to die than white women when it comes to uh, giving birth and when it comes to a lack of abortion access. So this, you know, it's it's an abortion fight that people uh, are standing up for, but it goes far beyond that to mental health, to physical health, and to potential financial health. Okay, Reggie, thank you for your time this morning. Thank you. Today's a difficult day. The judgment coming out of the United States is an attack on women's freedom, and quite frankly, it's an attack on everyone's freedoms and rights. Let me be really, really clear. In Canada, we will always defend women's rights to choose and continue to work to expand uh, access to the full range of reproductive and health and services uh, across the country. But today, I think of those generations of women around the world and specifically in the United States who fought so hard to gain rights and continue to fight today to get more and more rights because there's still so much more work to do and are facing this devastating setback. It shows how much standing up and fighting for rights matters every day, that we can't take anything for granted, that we need to continue to stand strong to defend everybody's rights and freedoms in Canada and where we are here internationally, standing up internationally as well, which Canada will do, whether it's uh, fighting for women's rights here in Africa or supporting people fighting for their rights in the United States and elsewhere. That was Prime Minister Justin Trudeau talking about the overturning of Roe v. Wade. So how did we get here? Nicole Huberfeld is a law professor at Boston University, and she joins us on the line now. Good morning, Nicole. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Nicole, uh, let's understand the actual ruling, because you write that the ruling does not mean that abortion is banned throughout the U.S. What do you mean by that? Yes, thank you for starting with that question, because I think there can be quite a lot of confusion. So the decisions in Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, 1973 and 1992 Supreme Court decisions, held that there was a constitutional right called the right to privacy that protected access to abortion. And that made it so that states could only have certain kinds of regulations during the course of pregnancy that would limit access to abortion. And so now states can choose how they will regulate abortion, whether that be to ensure access, as states, for example, in New England are doing, like Massachusetts and Connecticut, or whether states choose to ban access, like some states, such as Texas and Oklahoma, are doing. And so it doesn't mean that there's a new national stance. The Supreme Court didn't decide what the national stance should be, but rather, in the words of the majority of the court, turned it back to the states and their people. So this isn't a ban, but rather more of a free-for-all. Okay, I was reading uh, something that Neil Katyal was saying about it. He's a constitutional law expert in the States. He was also a former acting U.S. Solicitor General. And he said the clincher 
is that the this matter of whether a legislature decides that they want to criminalize it. If they want to say, oh, if you're obtaining an abortion, it means you go to jail or someone helping you, a doctor, an Uber driver. Um, so that the, is that that the states will then decide what gets criminalized according to the to the change? That's correct. So there is still a judicial standard of review here, but it isn't the heightened scrutiny that courts apply when there's a constitutional right at stake. Rather, what will happen is that courts will apply what we call rational basis review, meaning they try to decide whether the state legislature has a legitimate goal in mind and the law is a rational way to achieve that legitimate goal. And so the question will become, is it a legitimate goal to criminalize abortion? Is it a legitimate goal to decide that women can't have an abortion for any reason after fertilization, as Oklahoma has tried to do? And those are questions that will continue to be answered in the courts because courts will have to decide what is a legitimate purpose. And that is going to vary, and it's going to create more confusion, and it's going to actually create more litigation, not less. So though the court's opinion reads as if Justice Alito thinks he's sort of throwing this out of federal courts, I actually believe federal courts are going to have a much harder time figuring out what a legitimate state purpose is at this point. Where does this decision fit into the history of reproductive rights in the U.S.? This decision is unique in constitutional rights in the United States. There has been no instance of the court reversing itself on protecting a civil right. And this right has been in existence for 50 years. It has become part of a web of rights related to intimate relationships. And so though the court was at pains to say this is just about abortion because abortion involves fetal life, in reality, the way that all of these decisions have been written over time is that they are interrelated. So the right to privacy also protects the ability to access contraception, both for married people and single people. It's related to other intimate relationships, say the right to marry or the right to decide to procreate, uh, the right not to be forcibly sterilized by your government. All of these intimate relationships are protected by the same doctrines in the U.S. Constitution. And so when people are saying other rights are now at stake, they're not being alarmist. It's that the court has actually written these decisions to be a sort of web of constitutional rights. Do you think most people have that understanding in the States? No, I don't, actually. I think it's pretty hard to understand how all of these things fit together unless you're a legal expert. And I think the real issue, frankly, is that uh, popular uh, public confusion is already a problem. And we saw this when, for example, Texas enacted, you may have heard of SB8, that was the law that forbid abortion after six weeks and made it so that private vigilantes could enforce that law. Women in Texas didn't know what that meant, and healthcare providers in Texas didn't know what that meant. And they started traveling to other states to access abortion because they simply didn't know what the status of the law was. And I think that's the real problem, is that just the conversation itself is confusing, and it will make it so that there will have to be major public health campaigns on the part of the federal government, the Biden administration, and on the part of states that are supportive of reproductive care throughout the life course to ensure that people understand what kind of care is available. Quite often, the people who are requiring that care don't have uh, the education that you're even talking about there that one would need 
to understand how to navigate the system now. Where will that leave, uh, for example, poor and vulnerable women in the States who are seeking abortions? It's such an important question. Over time, access to abortion has become increasingly concentrated amongst low-income women and particularly Black women in the United States, people who have less access to preventive care in general. And these are the same vulnerable populations who are less likely to have um, access to good education, well-paying jobs, other kinds of supports. And so I think the confusion that will reign after this decision will hit vulnerable populations especially hard, and it will make it much harder for them to understand what kind of reproductive care is available. Nicole, thank you for your time this morning on on a Sunday morning. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Weekend Mornings with Raji Sohal podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to the show live on 980 CKNW from 6 to 9 a.m. every Sunday. Have a great week.